Hello and welcome back to another season of Much Language, Such Talk. We hope you've all enjoyed a well-deserved summer break. We know what you're all thinking. We're finally back with more amazing topics coming your way. Today you're hearing from me, Eva Maria, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Miranda, and how exciting it is. It's her first actual recording. Welcome, Miranda. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Maria. <laughs> very well, thank you. How are you feeling about this? Are you excited? I'm very excited. I have not done this before, although I've kind of been, like, been behind the scenes at the you know, past few years. Um, so yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, we're very excited that you're actually like present and on the scene and in the recording, especially because you're, uh, you grew up with multiple languages around you. So I think you're very fitting to be on this episode. A lot of very relevant questions. But let's get going. To kick off season three, we have invited a guest that has been on our wish list for a long time. And hold on to your seats because what you're about to hear is extraordinary. Our guest today is Richard Simcott. <laughs> Richard is a hyperpolyglot, which means he's fluent in more languages than the entire podcast team combined. And there is seven of us. He has studied over 50 languages and speaks about 25 to 30 of them fluently. And how impressive is that? Richard was actually born in England and is now considered one of the most multilingual people from the UK. As I mentioned, he has studied over 50 languages and has documented his journey and experience learning several of them. He has been asked to advise on multilingual and multinational projects and has consulted, for example, Forbes magazine, among others, on language learning. He has been named an ambassador for multilingualism by the German Goethe Institute, has been featured in The Guardian, and has co-founded the Polyglot Conference, which we will talk about later. He's a household name in the Polyglot community with 12,000 followers on Instagram and Twitter, 25,000 followers on Facebook, and a TikTok channel to help you with language learning, providing tips and fun facts. I think it's fair to say that both Miranda and I are super excited to have him on the podcast, so let's not waste any more time and dive right in with our questions. So uh, welcome, Richard. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me and for the invitation. We are thrilled that you took the time to talk to us, and I'm sure our listeners are very curious to learn about your journey and learn from your journey. So before we get into the like nitty-gritty questions, um, I kind of want the, to get the terminology out of the way. So what does it mean to be a polyglot? Um, like, how do you define mastery in different languages and does that even have to do with being a polyglot okay wow that's um small questions first hey <laughs> um, let's see uh, so, so should i start my uh, doctoral <laughs> research here now um okay so i mean let's take the term polyglot for example just as a, as a word i mean as a word it's a greek origin word which is an equivalent to the more commonly used in english word multilingual many languages that's literally all it means. What are many languages? Well, depends. I mean, typically people talk about monolinguals, one language, bilinguals, two languages. Often you'll hear trilinguals, three languages. And then you don't really hear about talking about quadrilinguals or quinlinguals or things like that. Normally we talk after the three, we talk about polyglots or multilinguals. I think that's fairly uncontroversial <laughs> as, a, as a starting point. Why the term polyglot and not multilingual? I think that this is a nuanced thing in the English language particularly. Um, I think that in a number of countries, 
there is actually very little distinction made. Like for, in French, for example, if you say polyglot or multilingue, it doesn't really change very much of anything. In fact, it's a very commonly used expression in French, polyglot, you can just use it. And it's the language in which I first learned the term polyglot. I'd not heard it in English until that point. Now in English, and I think within the language learning community, polyglot has taken a bit more of a nuanced meaning. And that meaning for me would be um, something more of a person who has learned languages that they do not necessarily need to learn naturally within their given environment, because there's more of a deliberate mm. reason to learn languages that are not necessary for existence, life, work, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the country you live in. Yeah, exactly. So I think polyglot has become that sort of catch all for people who are interested in languages they do not necessarily need to learn. And a multilingual, I think, has retained more of a multilingual child, child that grows up with multiple languages, a multilingual environment, a multilingual society where people commonly speak many languages. And in English, I feel that that's a new distinction, essentially, that's being made. And it, it may evolve and be fossilized. I don't know. It could change. But that's kind of where I am with the whole multilingual and polyglot. What does it actually mean to master language? The second part of your question now, that is, <laughs> <laughs> that is a minefield of, um, but to, for people to debate forever and ever. Yeah. Now, I even feel almost that mastery of a language is harder to define than fluency, which is another nightmare to define. Oh, it is. My baseline for this sort of idea of fluency, uh, mastery, I'm going to kind of leave to one side because I think that really is quite a difficult one to to express that anyone will agree to that would that would be okay this is how you say mastery fluency though i think is at its very core base level a person who is able to express themselves in most situations and that's saying non-specialized situations so all your normal daily life activities and conversations that you would have talking around the news and things like that but being able to i think in its core uh, element to be able to work through the language and study through the language and what i mean by that is then that it means that if they can't speak about a certain topic in with high precision they can at least talk around that topic to learn the terminologies understand it through that language to then later be able to speak about it in a more eloquent manner and so for me, that's kind of the idea of this base fluency. I think when somebody can do that, really, we're not dealing with a true learner of the language. We're dealing with somebody who can function in the language. And then mastery, I think, possibly would come later where people are really, they've got to a high level of that fluency and can really manipulate the language and make it their own. Maybe even coining their own new phrases and expressions that are in understandable to monolingual uh, first language speakers of that language. I always thought that um, I never really given it much thought to, you know, to the whole definition of what mastery is. But um, when I think I read it in like a description of your journey of learning languages, or I saw it in an interview, I don't know, but uh, my instinct was that it probably also has to do with, um, you now mentioned manipulating the language. And my initial thought was probably also the 
humor of it and you know play on words and cr being creative with the language right so that probably plays into that yeah exactly it's, it's really playing with the language and and that's kind of a level that talking you've lived in the country the culture the you've, you lived through the language for for a while you've not only worked and studied or can work and study through the language but you can take it a little bit beyond that and do what many speakers of the language as a first language can do and that is find funny things that you you just happen upon when you're talking or when you see the language in the wild and you can then take it and run with it and do your own thing there are cultural things that come onto that and tack onto that as well that make that harder and easier to do depending on the language and depending on the culture that's attached to the language but yeah you could go on forever yeah. i think mastery does tend to be used in a looser way when we talk about particularly mastery of topics mastery of um you know sort of individual things which is why i think there'll be people who would disagree with that um that idea but i think in general terms when we talk about mastery of an entire language i think really to my mind it feels like you're talking about kind of a domination over the language that you can really manipulate it and maneuver it in a way that um is actually quite clever and often for comedical effect yeah I, I think like it's really interesting when you talk about the humor I'm just tagging along here like um when I first moved to the UK I've, I've always spoken in English because I went to school in an English speaking school but the sarcasm was just a whole other language that I'd never encountered before and so like the kind of ridicule I'd get from my flatmates or like even like colleagues and students it was so interesting um to learn that side of this language um, but yeah, it's, that's, it's difficult to learn that level of well, whatever you want to call it, fluency or mastery, unless you're in the country of, I feel. And obviously the internet makes it so much easier now, um, which you probably agree with, Richard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can, you can basically create your own bubble of a language. I mean, you can, you can take your own language culture or somebody else's language and culture and move around the world with it because you can surround yourself with videos, with media, with um, chats with um, relationships with various people getting to groups interest groups and anything around the world and take that with you wherever you go so it's not the sort of isolated thing that we once had and I think in part that could see itself and I think is in part seeing itself as a savior uh, for um, some of the languages that are either not as popular um, with a general public to learn uh, languages that are vulnerable, endangered, indigenous um, to certain regions of the world. Um, I do think that we can see communities emerging and do see communities emerging where that's even possible as well. So a language like, for example, I've been learning Cornish for the last two years. Well, I mean, where, where would I naturally speak Cornish in the Balkans, for example? <laughs> <laughs> not really going to happen. Um, there's not really Cornish TV or anything like that that you can watch regularly. There is a Cornish program that's produced and there are Cornish programs on the radio as well that are produced um, and there are things that are written in Cornish but it's actually those communities online that we get together we talk we use the language and um, and that way the language is sort of grows develops and in your own mind and I think just as I'm doing for Cornish people could do for English Italian Swahili whatever language they want because the internet is everywhere and you can have that contact way more easily than before do you think your interest in all these different languages 
was partly due to like your access to the internet. Like, how did that begin? And is that how you got into this? So, um, yeah, define bilingual. <laughs> <laughs> we should define all the terms first, yes. Um, so in the strictest sense of the, of, of the term bilingual, no, I was not raised bilingually. However, I did speak a dialect and learned standard English. So my, my original dialect is Scouse. And, and so there is a different grammar. There are different words. It is obviously a dialect and people from Liverpool um, and surrounding areas that speaks and use Scouse on a daily basis identify as a dialect of English. That said, there are differences and you do have to code switch between the two. And people often do. Some people do more than others. It just depends on your own personal situation. So I had that kind of thing going on. I also had Welsh words in my English because my family is um, partly from Carnarvon originally in North Wales. And my, gran my grandmother's parents actually learned English as a second language and were first language Welsh speakers. And then they moved to Liverpool and um and didn't speak to the children in welsh but they they did have welsh in their english because they were told off in welsh like shut your mouth <laughs> <laughs> as you do yeah exactly and i was the youngest grandchild so i i enjoyed the experience of my grandmother um when she was getting older and going back in in her own mind to reminiscing about her own youth and she talked to me more whereas the other grandchildren i think had a different experience so i was maybe not the youngest but i was the youngest one who had that contact with her at that key age i think that's the, the important thing i wasn't the youngest grandchild um but i did have a special relationship with her and she used to teach me all of these welsh words that she did know from her childhood and so that really spurred me on to to fill in the gaps of welsh and to start using it and so i did i, I went back and reclaimed that heritage language as well and then I had French from a very young age at school. Uh, but yeah, the other languages, I don't think it would be to do with the internet because the internet wasn't really a thing until I went to university. There are certain languages that, of course, I don't think I would have been able to learn without the internet, just because of exactly what we're saying. The communities weren't there. The resources weren't there in the same way. Trying to find books on certain languages would have been nigh on impossible. Uh, but I was that child that went to the Isle of Man and bought the only book on Manx that you could find and brought it home with me at the tender age of 11. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, that I'm that kid. No, I was 10. I was, I'm even 10. But I'm that kid, right? So <laughs> this is the kind of thing. I've still got the book to this day. It's called Abir Shen, Say That in Manx. And um, I, so I still have this book at home. I've not really gone through it very much. I just used to leaf through it and be fascinated and then try and sort of figure out how on earth to pronounce anything that was in it. Yeah. But um, I did that with like a number of books and courses. So I would, I would buy that kind of stuff. But the internet really, when I got to university in um, 1995, uh, you know, just a couple of years ago now, I went into university and they had these uh, computers, which we didn't really have at home at that point internet which was really new for us in houses we had modems that were super slow and um all of a sudden you could write emails to each other i was like i didn't even know what an email was and we had this thing called the world wide web which was amazing 
and you could you could even build like a web page which is like super cool so i was learning this html to build a web page years and years ago and all of a sudden we got to make friends with the computer science people and they showed us irc internet relay chat where people around the world who had some computer knowledge and language knowledge meshed and they had these chat rooms in different languages and you could chat typing with people from all over the world in different languages and then they introduced us to the idea of having a microphone attached to the computer and all of a sudden you could speak to people across the internet and i cannot express to you how exciting this was <laughs> as in 1995 and 96 this was just i mean your brain just exploded with how crazy this was the future had arrived yeah. and now it's me using my languages online yeah i think we take it for granted that we're actually just like sitting in three three different countries basically in different time zones and we get to like chat about it i i sometimes even catch myself that i now marvel over over the technology that is now like people paying with their watches like i don't think i'll get over that anytime soon like i find that so <laughs> futuristic and yet i like I pay with my phone. Like I hardly ever take my wallet anywhere anymore. Like it's, you know, the technology just. Incredible, it, isn't it? It is. It really is. Yeah. It's like another level yeah. of excitement as well. Discovering a language through like a book that you buy um, versus like putting in a little Google and like having a like, oh, let's have a look at Swahili or like, like that level of excitement that would motivate me, I think, so much more to learn a language as well. Like being in a place where I'm like discovering it for the first time. So I, I'm a teacher and I find it really helpful when I have a student who's very interested in my subject already. <laughs> so I was wondering, what is it like when you were a student and you were interested in your languages? Like your teachers must have loved you. Mm. Um, <laughs> oh. Some of them did. Uh, some of them were very, very positive about uh, my enthusiasm. Uh, some of them less so. So it was a mixed bag. It was a mixed bag, uh, I'll be honest. Um, I think some of, the, some of the teachers that I met, particularly, I mean, at school, it was a really mixed bag. Um, at sixth form college, I loved my teachers. My French and Spanish teachers were just absolutely lovely people. Um, they, they got me. They got that I loved languages. They got that I just enjoyed learning them and using them and and they were very supportive and very helpful at school not so much at school I had a couple I had one or two good French teachers but for the most part at high school um they did not recognize or acknowledge that I was interested in languages or was even any good at them and so they really stunted my ability to study more and I could have studied more at the school but they they basically held me back and so, yeah, in in a way, I don't resent that because, um, I mean, I did at the time, I absolutely resented it as a child. I thought it was dreadful. But looking back, hindsight's a great thing, right? And um, and now I think that whilst it probably wasn't their intention, they just were meanie poos. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I now look back and think, well, it made me fight for what I wanted. And so it really made me want to learn more and to kind of show them. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that school did nothing for me at all educationally. Um, the sixth form college did. It was very, very good, very supportive. 
and university was a, a generally a wonderful environment. I absolutely thrived on the language opportunities in university. Um, I went to the University of Hull. Had, there were only five universities that did my degree. So I, I would look for a degree in, to do as the languages I'd studied at A-level and then also additional languages. And there were five at the time that did this combined languages degree. And Hull was actually originally my second choice. My first choice was Liverpool originally. And then the other choices were St Andrews, uh, Nottingham and Durham. And um, and then I went to Liverpool and I loved Liverpool University. It's a great city too. It is. I mean, I love Liverpool. I've, obviously, I've got family connections to Liverpool as well. And for me, it meant a lot to go to Liverpool. But um, my my choice there was actually to do Catalan. Oh, wow. For my degree. Ooh, nice. That's so cool. Yeah. And, and I thought, okay, I'd like to do Catalan. But then I couldn't do Catalan for the full degree. And then I had to switch to another language. I think it was Irish at the time. And, you know, again, I was 18. I was thinking I was thinking of what I would do in terms of work and where I'd go. And I didn't, didn't have a connection to Ireland. And I thought, what a business is going to want as well, because I was a bit more practical in terms of I was doing a degree to get, to get a job. And I thought, well, what am I going to do with Irish? A lot of people in Ireland were, were against learning Irish. And it was at a time as well where many Irish people were really against Irish. It's not like today where there's a huge and very nice positive revival of the Irish language. It was at a point where it was forced on people and people didn't want it. And um, and people resented it a lot in school, unfortunately. So Hull offered me this wonderful option. I They had old Icelandic, which for me was, I'd always wanted to study Icelandic. And, um, but I had to do Swedish and I was like, oh, Swedish. Okay. So anyway, I went to Hull and they, and they, they asked me to do this sort of Icelandic and then Swedish. And I actually really took to Swedish and enjoyed it. And then I got the chance to swap to Italian as well. And so I had Italian and then carried on with my Swedish as sort of a hobby. So I got to do like all of these languages at the same time at Hull. And I met lots of people there who who did language exchanges. So I did language exchanges with other Erasmus students who wanted to learn English and another who wanted to learn French, in fact. Um, I, I was helping her with French and she was helping me with Romanian. And so we were doing all these really strange language combinations. And, and um, I just really, really enjoyed it. So because you mentioned that you kept on adding languages um, and you still continue doing that, how do you now go about learning a language? Like, where do you even start when you start from scratch? Depends on the language and it depends on the resources and it depends on my um, ability to access right. people who speak the language or resources in that language. So right now I've started learning Nahuatl which is spoken in Cholula, where the Polyglot Conference is going to take place in October. And um, there are many reasons why I want to learn it, because I, I, I'm a big advocate for indigenous, endangered and vulnerable languages, first of all. And I support the, the decade of indigenous languages that's been set up. So that's part of it. And I think you've kind of got to talk the talk and not just walk the walk. It's got you've got to really um, get behind what you're standing up for. And so instead of it just being a, you know, sort of, hello, how are you learning? you like th literally three or four words in the language. I would much prefer to get a better understanding of the language, even if I don't speak it particularly well, to really get to understand how the grammar works, how the words are put together and have a better understanding so that culturally 
you can you can see where these roots have have really drawn from um, in what is modern day Mexico, and um, particularly the place where I'm going where we're going to be. Um, for that, I've actually got a, a a teacher, so I know now the kinds of things I want to talk about and know I need to talk about and cover to be functional. So you know the 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 top general topics that you cover A1, A2 level that you need to be able to do so that you can have an all, a well-rounded basic conversation. I mean, if you if you don't know the days of the week and the months of the year, you can't really add them into things that are important or relevant when you talk about where you went during the summer and which months you were away or when your birthday is or uh, when you're planning to do something, if you don't know how to tell the time, well, you can't really arrange to meet somebody very easily because you're going to be very imprecise. So as boring as some of those topics can be, they do have relevance and it's learning the relevance to be able to manipulate them in conversation. So going through topics like that with him is, is helping to build my, build up my now. Now at the moment, it's, it's very early days. So we'll see how we get on with it. But um, for a language like that, there are, yes, there are materials. Materials can differ quite a lot in quality and also in spelling norms, because now it was written down by different uh, colonizing nations in different ways. Right. And how many hours do you spend on um, a new language then? Or does it also differ whether it's like related to languages you've already learned? I call these my language projects. So they, they may or may not turn into something more longer term. Um, a bit like speed dating, right? But you, you spend a bit of time getting to know, um, but not just like a minute. I'm talking about sort of, I would normally do between one and three months for a language to, to sort of get under the skin of the language. How many hours I put in depends on the intensity with which I can afford to study the language and my goal for the language. So Estonian, for example, I studied and I tried out an application called Speakly for it for one month. And then I did an interview on TV um, in Estonia live. Um, and that was about four hours of study a day to be able to get to the point where I could say things in Estonian for an interview to cover the, all of those bases of the basic elements of the language to communicate and to understand questions that were asked of me. Um, was it perfect? No. Um, could I talk about astrophysics? No. Could I learn through Estonian? Potentially to a small degree, but not everything. And it would have still required a lot more work to get to that level. But it was functional in terms of communication was there. Well, now I don't have four hours a day I can dedicate to it. So that kind of level is probably not going to be there in the same way. But I do have two months instead of a month. And so I'm typically doing about an hour or two a day of now to, um, to sort of get it to a point where I feel I'll be able to not deliver a kind of a speech, hopefully, um, in the language that I can prepare in advance, but not just deliver a sort of an empty speech where I don't understand what I'm saying. Yeah, where you just memorize the words. Yeah, like I don't that. want to do that because that's, first of all, it feels a bit disingenuous to do that. Yeah, it does. And secondly, um, if there are questions, which there could well be, I want to be able to respond in, a, in an organic and natural way. So I'm not sort of I'm not that person that wants to just memorize rote fashion, lots of very pretty texts that I can then spout off and then can't say anything afterwards. Yeah. Having said that, though, there's one really beautiful word in Nelleth. 
um, apapachar, I think, uh, which means to like hug with your soul. I don't know where I saw that or like learned about that. I can't remember right now, but I remember seeing that word. I was like, goodness, that's like the most beautiful word I've ever heard. So I know it goes against everything you're saying, but <laughs> maybe one day I'll <laughs> learn too. <laughs> I kind of want to ask a question because you mentioned speed dating. I kind of like the um, analogy. But if you go with that analogy, has there ever been a language that you encountered where you were just like, oh, nope, <laughs> spend a minute with it, no thanks? Um, definitely not that I would say no thanks, but definitely there are languages that I've liked the look of, and then I've realized this isn't really going to go very far at all. So that gives me hope that you even say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that happened with Georgian. I'm very open about Georgian because I, I love Georgian. I think it looks absolutely gorgeous. It looks gorgeous. It looks really pretty on the page. I, I In fact, I studied Georgian at the University of Malmö for a year. So it's not that I did. I just sort of looked at Georgian and went, oh, isn't that pretty? And took a book and leafed through it. No, I, I studied Georgian for a year at the university in Sweden. and. At the end of a year, I didn't really feel I was getting very far with it. I couldn't really say very much. Um, and I had not at that point met a real life Georgian. I'd never met anyone who spoke the language. It's not a language that you hear here. And this is an issue, right? I've, I've got this thing that if I'm never going to use the language, it's very difficult to maintain it because when you study lots and lots of languages, It's one thing, for example, a language like Catalan, which I don't use very often at all, because it's related to other Romance languages, it kind of stays alive by proxy in my head, if that makes sense. Right, yeah. Whereas an unrelated language or a language that is quite different, even an Indo-European language like Latvian, I find will will diminish in it, my sort of ability, my ability, my ability in the language will diminish over time because I'm not being exposed to it or using it. And so I'll hear words or I'll hear things in Latvian every now and again, and I'll, I'll understand them or I'll see them or get them. But then if you're not using them, it's, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. And so I, I've got to a point where I accept that some of the speed dating languages that I have and has been through are exactly that. And you almost have to make peace with okay, this is a knowledge that will just add to my core of background awareness and knowledge of language in general. And whether it's etymological stories, whether it's grammatical references, all of these things that you learn about, you know, they're things that, oh yeah, okay, I remember that. Or I remember even it could be sounds of a language that you, that you get, you know, the very plosive sounds that you get in Georgian that you We don't get into European languages in the same way. Um, so I accept that it becomes a background thing that just adds to my general knowledge about this world and linguistically about how languages of this world work. I guess it's really important, yeah, the exposure and like being able to be motivated to to use it in a personal way as well. Like when you're learning a language or any subject, to be able to relate to it is so important um yeah or else why why are you learning it yeah exactly i mean and when you study a language obviously it's not going to be that every single word disappears from your brain of course not i mean you know you know i can still say you know you know hello in greet somebody in in georgian how are you or if you're talking to 
more than one person or in a polite way. These kinds of things stick, right? They stay. And I have got to use them afterwards. So I, I you know, I was in Cyprus and there was a, a lady who worked there cleaning the room. And I came out of my my room and I heard her speaking Georgian on the phone. And I just I greeted her in Georgian and she was like, oh. Oh. she even put the yeah. phone down. She was like really happy. She's like, oh, oh. so could you say something in Georgian? And I couldn't say very much, but the bit that I could say, people were like, oh, well, that's that's cool. That's cool that you know that. And people don't expect it, right? Especially language like Georgian, when they when they hear you're from the UK. I mean, the UK for all of its um, you know amazing things, we're not we're not known for our linguistic achievements. Necessarily. <laughs> yeah, that's not the reputation. No, it's not. It's not. No, it's not what we're known for. So yeah, it's it's nice to surprise people. And there have been a number of languages like that. Armenian as well. I I studied Armenian, and again you don't really hear it i met some armenians locally but they're kind of second third generation they don't speak the language then strangely enough i heard someone speaking armenian last year i didn't realize she was here and and i could say but jess hello i could greet her in armenian in how are you and i, I could say those things and again she was like what how on earth do you know <laughs> just open some into someone else's like realm or world like just by saying those words yeah. well it does because it's not because normally you expect someone to go back and learn them afterwards but not to know them on the spot to know those words i think really surprises someone when you meet them for the first time that's amazing i love that i used to be a tour guide here in edinburgh and i would always at the end try to say thank you to the people who are leaving or because when they tipped me or whatever um, and I was always try to say thank you in their language and I can say it in many languages but when you then do say it and they wouldn't expect you to know it in Danish or whatever you can tell that their whole demeanor changes it's just like oh <laughs> you know yeah, they do. it absolutely changes it really does just knowing even a few words of a language it, it really does have the power to change people's demeanor and and how they look at you 100 percent. yeah you've mentioned the complex relationship that you have with arabic or or georgian even but is there another language that you think was the most challenging or would you say it's like those two for for whatever reason in terms of actually learning to say things in the language i've i i've i still think for me it's been georgian um that that I found just the differences so so big to even say like basic sentences. Um, I've met other people who have learned it, and and I've got no doubt that if I if I were to go and really hammer Georgian and maybe go to Georgia and spend time, maybe I could break through that. But that's the one that I found the trickiest to break through so far in terms of I don't after so long I don't feel like I can say very much of anything. Whereas, I mean, there are other languages that that, that are that are challenging, of course. Um, but um, yeah, for me, it's been Georgian. I'd say has been the one. Whereas Arabic, I did get to a point where I could say quite a few things. Um, not perfect, but also understanding it when they spoke back as well felt more doable. Mm -hmm. Right. You might not agree with me on this, but I uh, speaking of challenges. <laughs> Because I saw that you started learning Korean last year, if I'm not mistaken, and I recently started learning Korean, and I'm 
I'm only starting with Duolingo and taking it very, very slow because I'm just not at a, my, my brain doesn't have the capacity to full on dive in because I have to finish my PhD first. But um, I'm really enjoying it so far. But because that is my first encounter with an Asian language, it's my first encounter with an SOV language um, with a completely different sentence structure. I've only really ever learned Germanic languages and I have learned Spanish and French at some point and a brief, very brief stunt with Zulu, which was interesting, but I was in South Africa at the time for half a year. But Korean is really just like the first language where I'm actually kind of want to call it my comfort zone. Like I, I have never really left my comfort zone before. So is there a different approach for those kinds of languages, uh, languages that are not related to the languages that you already speak, for example? Yeah, I mean, being very realistic and acknowledging it, I think, is the important thing because psychologically you have to be prepared that you're not going to make the same progress. Yeah, progress that you do, for example, as, as a German speaker learning Dutch. Oh, yeah, that was very quick. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just not going to be the same. And even with those languages, right, the ones that are similar, um, there are people who will study a similar language and they'll understand it from almost from day one, but then we'll never be able to tease it apart from other languages that they speak. So it's not, even that's not a given, but when it's a language like Korean and you've not studied any other languages that have got any, I'm not going to say related, obviously, because Korean is, is often talked about as a language isolate, even though the whole Jeju thing is a, um, a, another debate for Koreanic scholars to, to, to talk about. Um, it has borrowed heavily from neighbors. It's got a lot of, of what they call the Hanja, which is the um, Chinese characters, uh, Hansu. And it's also got um, a lot of structures that really um, mirror what you'd see in Japanese. Japanese, right? Yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of the use of particles, in terms of um, this agglutinative um, aspect to it, where, where you change slight things in the verb, but you add things in and take things off and whatever. And that's, it, it's got a kind of a Japanese type feeling to it. When people who have studied Japanese, I think, find it easier than, than say someone who's not had a Japanese or uh, Chinese background. Well, I can tell you that it wouldn't help me because I've never <laughs> studied Japanese. <laughs> so if, you, if you don't have that and you see other people learning it, sometimes it can feel a bit, oh, well, how are they learning it so quickly? And it's taken me a long time. Well, it's because everything's new. And so that's quite normal. So the important thing is psychologically to, for, to feel prepared for a slow burn and, and to, to, to just take that really into account. How many hours you study and how much contact you have with the language obviously is going to play a huge role in um, whether or not you pick up these words or whether you, you know, sort of get them in your brain as something you can actively use more, more quickly. If, you, if you're not being confronted by the language, like almost any language, then that process is going to be slowed down even more because the words are so different. You know, whereas other languages that you that you might learn that have similar patterns, whether that's grammatical or lexical, then they're going to stick way more easily because, um, first of all, you recognize them. Uh, they may even be written with the same, particularly as well as they're written with the same alphabet that you're used to. Um, you're trying to visualize an entirely different alphabet or writing system. 
uh, often as well as a learner is a struggle because your brain doesn't automatically attribute the sounds to the uh the, the characters or the or the new letters that they use uh so all of that also comes into play and slows down the process so i mean korean is a good example of a language that again i've i've got to say that i found learning mandarin and and, and studying mandarin at university mandarin for me is a plug and play language you learn you learn a character you learn its pronunciation you put them together and you've got a sentence i mean it, i'm not going to try and say that mandarin is the easiest language but compared to like to say basic things as long as you know these things and you know okay that you've got some tone tone shifts when certain words go together like you know ooh, but it goes it uses a ooh, sure or you you need to know that there's a change in 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 tones but apart from that with the pronunciation of mandarin it's a plug and play language i like to call them plug and play languages you, you plug a word and you say it korean isn't <laughs> Nope. Korean is um you, you've got these manipulations of the verb forms that really change things and it makes it a little bit more challenging to get used to that. Uh so if you take all of that on board and you're prepared for it, um, it helps to set expectations. And if your expectations are set, then it also helps to keep you motivated because you can be used to and expect slowly but surely will sort of get you there in the end on top of that like as someone who in high school was watching a lot of korean dramas <laughs> that really uh, i didn't even want I, I wasn't really particularly trying to learn any language there but i learned a lot of uh, i was really interested in it just because of that and a lot of my friends picked up korean and learned the alphabet through that obviously i grew up in hong kong so they spoke in cantonese which cantonese is an older well it used to be like what old mandarin um, was in China right so it sounded really similar to certain Korean words and things but I think I I think watching movies and shows are still a great way to yeah on my Netflix like to watch list is only k-dramas so once I finish my PhD I'm gonna like actually go for it and I am I am not proud to say that I am I've fallen um victim to k-pop <laughs> So I'm exposed to the language a lot already because I listen to a lot of songs. K-pop's great. It is. That's perfect. Yeah, I mean, and, and you do, when you, if you ever do a class, and I've done classes in Korean, and you definitely see, and they even study groups, and you see the difference between people who watch K-dramas and listen to K-pop compared to someone like me. I, I never got into K-dramas. I didn't get into K-pop so much. There's maybe one song that I like in Korean. Which is that? And I can't even remember. Way back, home, <laughs> yeah, way, back, like... way back home, way back home. It's got an English title. And I really like that song. But if you if you get into the, the, the sort of the language through the cultural um, materials that they put out, like songs, music, uh, and, and dramas or films, then that can really, really help to speed up the process. Because you, you're, you're hearing it all the time. Your brain gets attuned to it. Well, I, I have to figure out how to deal with my impatience because so far the languages I've learned, I progressed rather quickly because I was, well, first of all, I was always very interested in the language that I chose to learn, obviously, but I um, also really put in the effort and because the languages were either, you know, Romance or Germanic languages, the loan words and or cognates or whatever just helped 
a lot, of course. So I'm kind of have to, I'll have to manage my expectations <laughs> a little, but it's, it'll be fine. It will. You'll get there in the end. We'll see. <laughs> I don't know what my goal is even. Like I, I'm just going to see how far I get and see how long I enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with just trying it out and moving with it and going with the flow. Um, the only important thing is, is that you agree that with yourself. Um, the, the biggest frustration I ever see with people is it when they don't agree with themselves what they're doing. And then what they do is they leave themselves open to um, comparing themselves to other people. That person's doing better than I am. That person's learning more quickly than I am. That person's doing that and I'm not doing it. But very often they didn't set themselves any goals. So um, they're making, and, and often there are also unfair comparisons as well because they don't compare how many hours the other person's doing compared to them. They don't compare um, with their situation in terms of what they're doing in their free time, who they're with, their relationships, their contact with the language. Then they don't compare all of these things. So somebody might have been studying, like, like let's take Korean as a good example. Someone might study Korean for a year and um, study it every single day, watch K-drama, listen to K-pop, have a partner from Korea, speak it all the time. They may even move to Korea for a part of that time. And then somebody else will study Korean for a year, but they go to class once a week and then barely do their homework. And then they're depressed because, oh, that person's doing really well and I'm not. Well, yeah, because like you're doing one hour a week of study in a class. They're doing seven hours a week on their own. Plus they're using the language all the time as well. So they're going to go at least seven times faster because they're so, they're so into it. And I think that's quite natural. And the more you do it, the really weird thing is kind of unfair thing is, and I noticed this with Estonian, that because I was doing four hours a day, it was so intensive that my brain was thinking of Estonian after the study period a lot. Whereas if you study for one hour, your brain has many more hours in the day to focus on lots of different things. So you're actually not focusing on the language as much. Whereas if you do four hours, your brain is so full of the language that actually you find that it's probably doing an extra few hours of study, just absorbing what it's seen. Yeah. Subconsciously. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if anyone's researching that. Yeah. <laughs> someone probably should be, probably is already. Exactly. There's, there's a study there for someone out there. So. Yeah. You heard it here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Credit me, credit me, credit me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Credit where credit is due. <laughs> so you kind of mentioned already with like Latvian that it's kind of diminishing when you don't use it. And you mentioned like, if you don't use it, you lose it. Um, and we have a whole episode on nutrition actually with Monica Schmidt, who's of course the, you know, the biggest name in nutrition research. But I also read in an interview that you kind of, I think you mentioned that you block out the other languages because if you were to allow them to all interfere at the same time, you would probably go mad, which is understandable. <laughs> But how do you experience attrition or the, you know, cross-linguistic influence? Does it ever happen that you find it hard to keep languages that are maybe even closely related? How do you keep them apart? Or how do you experience trying to kind of get back the language if you haven't spoken it for a while? Is there a trick? Okay. Yeah, there are a few things in there, I think. So the... Um... The first part of the question, I think, of the um, attrition, I'll take that first. Um, so it's, yeah, it's very natural that you, you don't think about certain words or, or, or stuff. 
and and so it, it kind of goes into the deep recesses of your mind or almost feels like it's completely forgotten i think even monolinguals experience this they will study let's say they study science for however many years do all the biological terms remain in their brain physics terms or chemistry or whatever else do they stay there no not for a, the vast majority of people i would say unless they actually have an interest in it or they they use certain parts of it but all of the stuff that they learned at school does not stay i mean even even in you know, topics in history and geography as well in all of these subjects words kind of fall by the wayside they they, they stop being used actively and that's quite normal so with another language of course you can have a similar thing and um, if you're not talking about certain topics the words will sort of maybe they can get corrupted particularly if you've got other languages where you have similar words but they're not exactly the same they can get corrupted and that's also fairly normal there are words that in one language mean one thing in another language mean another so you know voyage in french is very normal kind of a trip whereas a voyage in english is like <laughs> it's got this slightly different feel to it of a sort of this expedition great yeah, it was about an adventure yeah it's yeah there's a lot there's a different feel to it right so you get this kind of thing where, where where words have different meanings slightly and you can fall into that trap sometimes of using the wrong word uh, because you know it and it comes to you in in your mind in, in one language first and um, in fact thomas back has this wonderful slide that he shows people at the presentations that he gives where he shows the word pies p-i-e-s written in english and you say pies but obviously in uh pies written the same way in polish is pies which means dog uh p in french p-i-e-s means magpies um and then you have pies in spanish written the same way means feet so so there's always going to be this kind of cognitive dissonance going on for anyone who speaks those languages well because there's going to be a really strong connection to a certain image or feeling or relationship and so there's always going to be that kind of fight internally the where it goes to and depending on what's happening in your life and what you're speaking more or less i guess that will shift so that that can happen the other way that i've felt attrition is just simply not having the words at my fingertips so it's sometimes it's on through your tongue and you know it and you know you'll recognize it but you just can't say it and produce it so it goes from an active knowledge to a passive knowledge and that's probably one of the first things i think that happens with some words you know particularly a word you know i, I heard the word udens in um in latvian just the other day on tiktok i was on i was on language tiktok and um they were discussing the the etymology of the word water and how it's the same that this person had realized that the word udens in 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 latvian is actually the same word as water in English, the same etymological root, which I, I thought was fascinating. I never thought about it, but I'd realized that I'd not heard the word udens since I was in Riga speaking Latvian using the Latvian language. But I, as soon as I heard, I was like, oh, yeah, of course, that's what, what, yeah, of course I know that word. Um, so words can kind of fall out in that way. But then if you see them or you hear them, you recognize them. Then you can just out and out forget words that you just, you, maybe you, you saw them 
but you didn't deeply internalize them. They didn't go into your long-term memory at any point because you studied them for too short a period. You didn't have the repetition because you need to cycle through the same vocabulary many, many times for it to become a part of your, your being. So I get all of that stuff happening. Coming to a completely different topic, and that is a bit more personal, we did uh, an interview with uh, Professor Jean-Marc de Valle um, from Birkbeck University, London, who does a lot of research on multilingualism and language and emotions. Um, and we were kind of interested to see what you learn, what you think of like how and what language is emotional for you, um, more so than other languages maybe. It probably has to do with like what language you speak at home to your wife and maybe daughter, but like how does that manifest? So there are languages that you obviously are more emotionally tied to. Yeah. So, for example, I if I hear German, I always have a very positive reaction. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah, because I learned it in a family. I, I was an au pair in Germany. And so I learned with three little girls. And um, when I went there, the youngest was two, nearly three. And then the middle one was five and the other, the old one was seven. And so... The first question they asked me when I arrived in Germany was, can du spagat? Which means, can you do the splits? <laughs> when can you? What was your answer? <laughs> I, I didn't know what the question was when I first heard it. So he said yes. <laughs> I'd been in Germany a month, and strangely, my books didn't teach me how to ask if you could do the splits in the first <laughs> lessons. <laughs> so, I was like, I was like, what's this done spagat? And then I was like, what's this spagat thing you're talking about? And they went like this with their fingers and showed me on the, on the palm of their hand <laughs> with, their, with their legs. And I was like, no, 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 I can't. No, 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 no. <laughs> In very nice sort of plat German. Um, you used to, so when you learn a language with kids, particularly like in the way I learned it, in a German family, it was just so sweet. So, I mean, I love in German that you have this, ich hab dich so lieb. And that's just such a cute thing to say. It's like, I, it's a, and I love you, but it's an I love you that's... It's more innocent. It's stripped away of all the romantic feelings yeah. and, and, and sexualized. No, no sexualization there in that, in that way of saying it in German. Whereas English and, and even, even for Spanish as well, it's very difficult to strip that away. Um, with the way of saying I love you. Even in Spanish, you've got te quiero, te amo. But there's something romantic about both of them or sexualized about them in some way, right? So even if some people will say they prefer one over the other in Spanish to say with their kids, but in German, there is this platonic I love you that is just a beautiful way of expressing that emotion in a sort of a, a just I love you without any weird things behind it. You can say it with your friends and you can say it with family and it's it's beautiful. So when you've been through that type of experience with a family, when you hear the language, you can't help but have just say, oh, it's German. There's something special about that. So I do have a very strong emotional response to German. Naturally, Macedonian too, I have a, a strong response to because it's a family language and um, so, yeah, of course, it, it's it's a special language to me. Uh, but also, I mean, there are other languages where I'm, I hear it and I'm like, oh, it's home. You know, there are sort of languages that are home, homely languages. So um, 
yeah, I kind of like it. I mean, I was whenever I walk anywhere abroad and I hear a language that's out of context, but it's a it's a language that I've lived through or lived in, or I'm used to a community language. I often have this very good response. Um, well, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's like a different take on on this in the sense that where like a lot of people would say romance languages are the most like emotional for them like the way they can express love there's just so much vocabulary for it like in Spanish or French but I love the what you've said about German and like how you feel that to you like personally it's it's so much to do with your personal experiences and memories yeah it is I mean it's memories are I think how you learn a language and what you experience through the language is really important it does definitely shape and form your opinions and um and then when you hear the language again later it, it definitely whether that's a positive or a negative experience i think people have different experiences of languages for those reasons well that warms my heart <laughs> because german is very special to me as well so we've talked about so much today already like we've talked about language and emotion we've talked about like your personal experiences learning the different languages you've given advice to us all all the listeners on how we could get over hiccups in learning a language as well so what kind of things do you talk about in your conferences like do you talk about these kind of things or is there something more specific so the polyglot conference was born out of the language learning community online and that language learning community is diverse so uh, we have people in academia people who work with languages or through languages and just language enthusiasts who just like learning languages. So the conference represents all of those groups of people. And so we have talks from academics, from professionals, language professionals, and from language enthusiasts, because we've all got something to share and we've all got something to add. And I think the magic happens when we all talk together and communicate. The magic doesn't happen in closed rooms where we all agree with each other and we're all coming from the same place. That's not true diversity. And so this is what the conference is about. So um, in different languages, about different languages, from different angles, from different peoples, from different backgrounds, from different uh, communities and identities, and to, to get as much of a diverse range of voices out there as possible. And you organize these conferences a lot of the time. You're such an active figure in like this community. So is there like a, a specific place where this motivation comes from? Like bringing all these different people together, does it, is it lovely just to have different people coming together? Is that, is that where it comes from? Or is it the debates, the academic side? So my background at the Foreign Office was actually conference organizing. I did a lot of conference organizing in the Foreign Office. So I had that as a thing where I, I knew I knew the skill, I had the skills to put things together. And um, I learn languages for communication, for human interaction, and, and that's what I want. So, you know, language is the thing, one of the things that defines us as human art, you know, as a species, that's what, what makes us who we are, the, the complexity of our, of, of our ability to, to communicate um emotions ideas thoughts our language is that complex that it can convey so much and so bringing people together for me is a natural um, extension of that because uh, and bringing people together who wouldn't normally come together is allowed really a possible thing that we can do because of technology 
because we couldn't do that in the past in the same way. It would be very, very difficult. You're going to have maybe one person and they'd have a very different idea of what the, what to expect before they arrived because they'd be arriving from their little world, from their environment into a completely alien one. They would be, they would find, they would sort of get on, get on stage, do their thing, leave, and they'd feel very vulnerable, very sort of isolated. Whereas we're all coming together from different places now and we have an idea of what that's about and how that will play uh, out. And so, we can do that way more easily. And for me personally, um, I, I'm a huge advocate of indigenous, endangered and vulnerable languages. So the Polyglot Conference is also a great vehicle that we can use to give a platform, a stage and a voice to very capable speakers from different communities around the world and hopefully help to shine a light on those people speaking because as foreigners going into a community, we are privileged, no matter where we're from. If you are foreign going into a different environment, we we carry a privilege with us. And that privilege is that we will get attention naturally and often from media outlets, um, because look, the foreigners have come in. What are they doing? But what we can do with that is leverage that privilege and and shine some of that light onto the people locally who don't normally get that because they're just the locals and it's not that interesting. So this is what I really like about the conference as well and that we change places. I love that you acknowledge the, the privilege um, and that you use that not only like to, you know, for the fun of it and to bring people together and hear them like speak in all these kinds of different languages, but to actually use it for language revitalization and preservation and advocacy right I, I really appreciate that so thank you for that it sounds lovely as well I'd love to partake if, if possible I mean I'm not a polyglot yet but... absolutely <laughs> can we all go to Mexico <laughs> you can all come to Mexico I mean look if you can't make it to Mexico this year you can always come to the global one this this year and then the in-person one next time that's always possible that sounds great global still available <laughs> where do we find that where do we find out more about this is it on polyglotconference.com and the we so we have two conferences really we have the in-person conference which is in cholula mexico and we have the global conference which is an online version um it's not an online version of the same conference it's a, and we call it global because there are advantages to having an online conference that you don't get with an in-person conference first of all you can have presentations that are pre-recorded presentations that are five minutes long ten minutes long an hour long it doesn't really make a huge difference because they're pre-recorded and you can watch them anytime as part of the conference. You can then have follow-on Q&A sessions live if you want. You can also have things that take place all around the clock. And we also have the conference running over full week, including the two weekends either side. So way more time than you can have at a physical conference because you don't have the same costs involved. And also we leave the live environment open all year. So people can arrange language learning exchanges and um, practice sessions all through the year and see the presentations all through the year as well. And what kind of people can attend, like researchers, a lot of academic people as well, or could it be like anyone? Is it open to everyone? Anyone who loves language and not languages, language, because I'm a great believer in we can all learn something from each other. And just because one person has studied however many languages or one person studied a language to the point that they've sort of done their postdoctoral thesis on an aspect of that language and its history or literature 
it doesn't mean that those people can't learn from other people. Um, there are always things that we that can spark thought and excite us and help us to learn more. And so I, I, I think that we can all learn from each other. And so if you if you love language and you're excited about learning more about language in general, then you're welcome. Perfect. I think we'll have a lot of listeners coming into that conference now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so. And I'm a big believer in lifelong learning anyway, because I don't think you ever stop. Oh, yeah. So I guess the last question that we have is, what are you up to next? Um, you once said in an interview that you're going to continue learning languages for as long as I, as long as you can. What's the plan? Is there a plan? <laughs> Good question. I have plans and then plans are there to be broken and ruined and something else happens. <laughs> so my plan, my plans have been completely changed after the pandemic. So weirdly, yeah, I mean, I started learning Persian before the pandemic because I wanted to learn Persian because the same reason of the whole links to Turkish and the Balkan languages and tracing back Arabic and Persian. And that was my plan. And then the pandemic happened and I stopped because there were opportunities to study other indigenous, endangered and vulnerable languages online. So I decided that this is a unique opportunity to take advantage of these things and Persian isn't going anywhere. So the first course I took was in Northern Sami. I did a course with Edinburgh University in Scots. I did a course in Kristang, which is a Creole language from Malaysia and Singapore, which is a mix between Malay, Portuguese and elements of Chinese and a really beautiful language and tradition. So really cool. I did a course in, I, I was doing some Korean as my main other language because my daughter was interested in doing some Korean, but that was the only one that wasn't uh, sort of in the same vein. And then a friend of mine said, there's this Cornish language course happening. Do you fancy doing some Cornish? And I was like, well, I wasn't planning on it, but eh, if it's there, why not? So I signed up to Cornish and she was unable to continue, but I carried on and did the first grade exam, got really into it and the community, and then started, started the second grade. I did the second grade exam before the summer, and now I'm starting grade three Cornish. There are four grades. Wow. The fourth grade takes place normally over two years. And then after that, you can become a bard of the Cornish language, which I think sounds quite cool. Oh, a bard. Wow, that sounds exciting. And not that I'm going to hold myself to that, because, but it does sound quite cool, doesn't it? I mean, that's not a reason to do it. It's like saying I want to be a P I want to do a PhD because I want to become, call myself doctor. It's a ridiculous reason to do a PhD. But it, it's still quite a nice sort of thing in the air that you think it would be cool, but I, I'm enjoying it for the ride. I'm enjoying it for the actual content of what it is. So there's there's the Cornish that will continue for this year for sure. And I, I was doing Scottish Gaelic and then I swapped for Irish because I made more connections with Irish speakers and with Scottish Gaelic speakers. And it was easier for me to get into a community. So I've kind of shifted my knowledge of Scottish Gaelic into Irish. And I've been doing that with actually a Dutch guy that I met on Twitter and we we get together a few times a week and we we study Irish together as you do <laughs> as you do now I need to find someone to learn Korean with hit me up <laughs> yeah well there there are I can I can be in touch with you about that anyway there are there's a group there are groups of people that learn Korean so you can do it on Clubhouse quite well or some study groups nice okay we'll we'll be in touch about that and then 
this year, obviously now at the moment, now I, I don't know how far I'll go with it, but definitely until the conference. And and then I may be taking a course in Ladino, which is the Judeo-Spanish language. There's a course on offer at uh, the University of Oxford starting in September or October. It's a free course. You just sign up up to the 12th of September and you can get a place. So a um, friend of mine, Carlos, is running it. Um, so yes, I've signed up to that. So we'll see if I get a place. And if I do, I'll be doing some Ladino. I've done a bit in the past. So and I went to the um to the Ladino speaking community in Istanbul and spent some time there listening to presentations in Ladino at the at the synagogue. And that was a lot of fun, very interesting to do. Cool. So yeah, it's not gonna get boring anytime soon. No. Beyond that, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's thousands of more. <laughs> Sounds like there'll be a lot of traveling involved as well in the coming year, going to these conferences and places. That's exciting. Yeah, there there are a few travel opportunities now opening up because obviously the pandemic has eased a lot more for a lot of countries. So yeah, there's there's Mexico, and I'm going to go to London actually, the end of September for potentially an event that we're going to have there, and then I'm going to go to uh, an event in Poland in November as well. But that's sort of a, a separate event. That's an event about conference organizing. Nice. Well, if you're ever in Edinburgh, please let us know. And Miranda is in London. The plan is to set up a new event in Edinburgh. We want to do another language event in Edinburgh. We did that in 2020. And that was really good. Thomas came and spoke at that. And uh, so did Shireen, who's studying University of Edinburgh as well, looking at multilingualism and autism. Autism, yeah. I think she's actually starting um, assistant professorship at the University of Birmingham. She came to that event in Edinburgh. She came to the conference in Reykjavik and presented her the start of her research there. And then she concluded her research uh, at the event in Edinburgh. Oh, full circle. That's nice. That was really nice. So yeah, if we're there, please do feel free to come up and Yes. I'd love to come back to Edinburgh. I always want to find an excuse to go back. So if there's another conference, I'll be there. <laughs> okay. Well, that's it. Thank you so much for coming and joining us um, in this lovely podcast episode, Richard. It's been so lovely to meet you. And I'm sure we could ask you so many more questions, um, but obviously time is limited. Uh, it's been delightful, educational, interesting, insightful. The list goes on. Um, and we cannot thank you enough for coming and sharing your experiences with us. If you want to follow Richard on his language learning journey, you can follow him on YouTube and his other social media channels where you can find him under Speaking Fluently. That would be on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. You can also support him on Patreon, uh, which we have the link in the description and on our website. Of course, now that we're back with another season, you won't want to miss the great episodes coming your way. So please do sign up to our newsletter on our website, mlstpodcast.com. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And we hope to see you on the next episode. So uh, without further ado, everyone who's listening, stay safe, stay curious. And... Hold on a